them to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. It's going to be somewhat near the end. If you need to use your table of contents, please don't be, feel embarrassed. We've all been there. Um, but please turn with your Bibles and follow along with me, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I was in what feels like another lifetime ago. Um, I was a math and math ed double major in my undergrad, which means my plan was to be a math teacher. And one of the things that we learned in the process of our training that we kind of knew inherently anyway is that one of the struggles of teaching math is you get these questions like, do I really need to know how to like, you know, multiply and divide fractions in the real world? And a lot of times the answers that teachers give and that students, or at least what students hear is, well, yeah, you need to know that so that you can take more math. And you need to know that so that you can take even more math and more math. And it just becomes futile and frustrating, if we can be honest about that. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, math is hugely applicable in the real world. But I also want to acknowledge that there are times when so much of life feels that way. Why do I have to do this? Well, to do the next thing, and to, the, to do the next thing, and to do the next thing. And life can even at times feel pointless and futile. And we wonder, well, what is the point anyway? If that's what you're feeling this morning, or even if you're not, I, my prayer is that I would encourage that the, the text this morning would encourage you. We're going to be looking together at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, because that's what Paul is writing to do, as I hope you'll see shortly. He's writing to encourage the people of God with the very hope of the gospel that not only promises eternity with God, but gives meaning to life now. Let me turn with, you, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I can get my glasses and my microphone figured out here, we'll be really good. There we go, that should work. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before you, God and before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men these men we prove to be among you for, for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, not for, for you received the word in much affliction with, joy of the Holy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from, the, from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, Jesus who delivers us from our, the wrath to come. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray one more time this morning. Father in heaven, we need your spirit this morning, Lord Jesus. We don't need more facts, we don't need more information, we don't need more advice. We, your people, need to know that the gospel is true, that there is indeed true, living, lasting hope. Father, we need to know that there is meaning for the world in which we live in, for, the day, for our days and weeks and months and years. Father, we need you, and we pray that we would find you this morning through your word. 
I humbly ask, Father, that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would teach, that they would lead us and take us to the place where you are, that we might be changed, that we might behold you as you are, even in the heavenlies now, that we might know you and that we might be changed. We pray this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to use your imaginations for just a few minutes. Pretend with me, if you will, that it's September 2013, and a small group of us are meeting for Bible study at Tim and Christine's home, as we did back in 2013. A few of us have been in town for just over a month or so, and while so much is new, we're thankful to be, to get, to be gathered together on the Bible. We're studying the book of John, in, in fact. We're getting excited about what this might lead to because we came here to start a college ministry and to start a church. But the next day, Monday evening, you're sitting down at the dinner table and your phone begins to vibrate and you realize it's Travis Shanahan calling to say that, that, that Tim Durrett is in jail. And you're thinking, Tim's in jail? Why is Tim in jail? Well, it turns out that word has gotten around that there's a new pastor in town, that Pastor Brian is, is here and he's stirring up trouble somehow. They're trumping up charges, of course, and they can't find him. But they find the next closest thing, the guy that hosted the Bible study. And so Tim gets carried off to jail. Travis is calling to collect bail money to get him out, but also to ask that everybody, that everybody from the, this new church, this young church, if we could get together at his house later that night to pray and to talk about what's gonna, what we're gonna do next. When you get to the Shanahan's home, nearly everybody's there. And we spend a sweet time in prayer asking for the Lord for wisdom and for grace and for understanding. Tim's out by this point. He's there gathered with us and we're glad to see him. We check on him, but we quickly come to a consensus. We need to get Brian and his family out of town ASAP for their own health and for their own life. The rest of us will stay here and continue on. So we send him on to Salina, thinking that's far enough away that he should be okay there. And then a few weeks later, we learn that he started another Bible study and we're cautiously optimistic and excited. But then we find out that the group from Manhattan that chased after him here has gone all the way to Salina, and once again, he has to run for his life. Put yourself in, those, in that situation. What's going through your mind at that point? There's excitement of new friends and a new, a new, new community and a new church, but there's also this reality like, this is gonna be difficult. This is gonna be hard. In general terms, that's how the church in the Greek city of Thessalonica got started. Paul and Timothy and Silas, or Silvanus as he's called at the beginning of this letter, show up there to preach the gospel. And you know what? People's lives are changed. We read that some of the Jews that they, that they met and that they reasoned with from the scriptures were converted. They became followers of Jesus. A number of devout Greeks, Greeks who had, who had committed to following the Jewish way themselves, were converted as well. And in fact, he, he, Paul, uh, the book of Acts even mentions that some influential women were a part of this, this initial church as well. But where do they, where, what about the Thessalonians? What happens? Paul and Timothy, Timothy and Silas are chased out of town, just as I said. And the people who remain, we, we learn from the readings from other parts of this letter of 1 Thessalonians, they, they suffer. In fact, we, we also learn that they cling to Jesus, they seem to cling to Jesus in such a way that they're so fixated on the future that all they see is, is the promise of the gospel as an escape, as a way out. Can you blame them? Look, we just had a Bible study. We're just talking about Jesus. And while, yes, it's a big deal, should our lives really be threatened? That was the reality for God's people as it is even today in many parts of the world. Given those realities, we might question in those moments many, many things. Was this really what God wanted? 
our pastor just got chased out of town. How could God want this? For some, it might even cause us to question the truth of the very message that they're bringing. Could it really be that Jesus, that this Jesus is the Lord of creation and Lord of, Lord of all things if we can't even stay in the same town for, for any period of time? From the first words of this letter, though, what I want us to see this morning is that Paul encourages these young Christians with the gospel itself, with the announcement that the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is indeed sufficient to reconcile us to God and set us free to live with Him as He in, to live for Him as He intended. As we start to make our way through this text, no, notice where He begins. And it's, if you're familiar with the other letters in the New Testament, you know that this one's going to sound a little different if you look at the details. As was common in the day, the first line of the letter is, the, is the, the authors of the letter itself, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They were the ones who brought the gospel to, to the city of Thessalonica. But then notice what he says in the second part of verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus in, in most of Paul's letters is on the place. He'll say he'll write to the church at Philippi or to the saints in Colossae. But here... He writes to the church that is the church of the Thessalonians. His focus is on the people themselves. As if to say to them, you are not nothing. You are part of the people of God gathered in this place. Don't forget that. But then he goes on to, to, remind, us that to remind them that their existence indeed is rooted in the love of God. Notice what he says next. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a believer is to be in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with Colossians 3.3 where, where Paul writes these words, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How much safer, how much more encouraged could you be than from that reality? That our lives are hidden with Christ in God himself. We are united to Christ, united to the Father by his grace. But then look down at verse 4. I'm going to come back to 2 and 3 in just a minute, but look at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He calls them brothers. The implication is brothers and sisters, that we are, we are united to Christ together. And the, he's writing to those, and he acknowledges that they indeed are loved by God. But then he uses this, this troublesome word for, uh, for many of us. He says, he says this back in verse 4. He says, He has chosen you. Another way to say that, another word that would be used there is that you are his elect. It can be difficult for us unsettling at times to wrestle with the fact that God would, would choose us, that the initiative would come from him. And yet that's the hope of the gospel indeed that we have. And if, if that's a wrestling point for you, please, I, I don't want to try to, I don't want you to think I'm trying to give you an easy answer because I realize that that's difficult. But I want to acknowledge that that's in scripture. And, and I, want you, I want to ask you to consider it this way. Don't think of it as God picking, you know, for his kickball team at recess, who's in and who's out, who's first and who's last. Think of it simply as this, that God out of his love is selecting you. That God out of his grace and out of his kindness is pursuing you. It's a theme that we see running throughout scripture. John Stott, the English theologian and pastor, wrote of this verse in these terms. He said this, he said, in scripture, the topic of election is nearly always introduced for, pra for a practical purpose in order to foster assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy, humility, not pride, and witness, not lazy selfishness. 
But then he goes on to admit this, based on Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. He says, still no explanation of God's election is given except God's love. Here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul unites the love of God and the election of God. And what it comes down to is this. He chose us because he loves us. And you're going to hear me right. He loves us because he loves us. That's the answer that Scripture itself gives us in Deuteronomy 7. He chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are, we are lovable, but only because he is love. And with that mystery, we must rest content. His message to the Thessalonians is, you indeed are loved. That's where his encouragement begins. And we know this because of the work of the gospel. But look back at at verses 2 and 3 and notice how he wants them to take a, a second look at their lives. He says this, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See what he's doing? He's naming something that they need named for them, that they need to remember because it would be easy to forget. To these young Christians, he says, I see your faith, I see your love, and I see your hope. This triad is what John Calvin calls a brief definition of true Christianity. And what's fascinating about this is the descriptive words that he uses again there in in verse 3. Notice how he speaks. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. He's describing their faith. Their faith that evidences themselves in effort. Not an effort to earn God's affection, but an effort that says... Father, I don't understand your love, but I'm thankful for it. And my only natural response is to respond by by giving effort towards loving you and towards loving people, or towards believing in you and trusting in you. He acknowledges the labor of love there, the weariness of sacrificially seeking the good of others, because loving people takes effort, and it is laborious at times. It is hard at times. It goes unacknowledged. And yet Paul is saying, I see your love. Then he adds to this, This idea of enduring constancy in the face of difficulties. I know the steadfastness of your hope. He's naming for them what they need to be named. He's saying, I see it. It's there. Whatever you may be feeling, whatever you may be facing, the realities of the hope of the gospel are at work in your lives. So how do we find the encouragement that we need? The strength to go on and keep moving forward. How do we see more clearly the faith love, and hope of the Christian life working itself out in our lives, in us and among us. What I want you to see in the next few, few verses is this. Paul begins by reminding the Thessalonians and us of our experience with the gospel itself. Look with me at verse 5 and know where he, know, look where he starts. What he wants us to know is he's going to give attention to how the gospel came to them. He's, he's calling them to remember. Look again back at verse 5. Where, how does he start? He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, when, when, Paul says, when Paul talks about the gospel entering our lives, he does so realizing that it comes from outside of us. That what we experience as Christians in, in experiencing the gospel is not something that we, we stir up within us as if it's mere optimism or some vague kind of sentimentality. It's not reliant on your circumstances. It's not dependent upon your emotional state. The perspectives that he gives us is, that those who, uh, is of those who brought the gospel to the Thessalonians. So interestingly, where Paul says, he doesn't start, start by saying, 
think about, think about what you did. He says, think about the message that we brought to you and how it came to you and what God did. What does he say there? The first thing he says is, in, in, in verse 5, is he says this. Um, if I can find verse 5, there it is. Our gospel came to you not only in word. Let's pause for a minute. Not only in word. He's not saying it didn't come by words. He's saying it did come by words, but he says there's more, which we'll get to in a second. And what I want to pause to acknowledge is this. The gospel comes to us in words. Words that matter. It's an actual message. There is content to the gospel because it is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is content to it. It is not blind faith. It is not some sentimentality or vague optimism. The words and ideas of the gospel matter. It's why we like you to have the text of the scripture in some way, some way, shape, or form in front of you every Sunday. Because we want you to know we're not, just, we're not just spouting ideas or philosophies. The gospel comes to us in the content of the Bible, of the scriptures themselves. The words and ideas matter. And Paul doesn't want us to overlook that. But what does he add to this? He says it comes not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now it's tempting to read this as something along the lines of this. It's tempting to, to hear Paul, Paul's argument is going along these lines. That we're looking to be amazed by some miraculous sign so that we would know for sure. And indeed, in the early church, in the book of Acts, if you're, if you're not familiar with, with that, it's about the spread of the gospel through the known world at the time. As the gospel spread out, there were many occasions where there were miraculous things, things that could not be explained with, with simple human explanations. Blind people being able to see, people who never could walk before being able to walk, and so on and so forth. But the scriptures never set apart for God's people that that's the way that it always works every time throughout history. And this is one of those occasions where we don't see those things happening. You see, what Paul is referring to is this. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings forth faith in the life of people. Wherever belief happens, it is the work of the Spirit. It comes by the power of the Spirit. What I mean by that is this. In John chapter 5, Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Beloved, that is the power of the Spirit. That to believe is to have crossed from death to life. I've been told by medical professionals that as often as people are saved by the defibrillators on TV, it almost it rarely, much more rarely happens in real life that someone who's died comes back to life. That's the power of the Spirit working in us. That's what Jesus says. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been uprooted from the kingdom that you love in darkness and moved to the kingdom of, the, of God's beloved Son. In Ephesians 1, he writes this, What is the immeasurable greatness of, this, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heaven, in heavenly places? The resurrection of Jesus happened by the same power of God. What Paul is saying is, is this, when you come to faith, when you believe in Jesus, it's because the power of the Spirit took your dead self and made you alive spiritually. He brought life where there was not life, breath where there was not breath, spiritually speaking, and you are now alive. 
I think it's tempting for us often to see the Holy Spirit like we see the use of nitrous oxide in the, in the Fast and the Furious movies. If you're not familiar with it, it's about street racing. This is not an overall recommendation of the movie series, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But, but you know how it works, right? It doesn't take much for us to imagine how this works. You've got these souped-up cars that are noisy and shiny and have metal chrome parts sticking out all over the place and lights shining everywhere. And what happens, they drag race, you know, because this is safe, they, they drag race in the streets of some major city, and how no one gets hurt, I have no idea. But that's what happens. And you know how the race goes. The cars are neck and neck, pull, one's pulling ahead, then the other's pulling ahead. And then the other guy hits the secret button underneath his chair, turns the knob, and all of a sudden, bam, he's off, and he wins the race, because he's got this special juice that makes his car go faster. And I'm told that's not how it works either. That's, how we see, that's often how we see the Holy Spirit. We just need the, the, the little bit of extra hump, you know, juice to get over the hump with somebody, just a little bit extra. That's not the power of God, that's not how the Spirit works. The message here is this, when faith happens, it's not a little bit at the end, it's because the, the Spirit of God is working through them by His power to change lives. I know that many of you could look at your life and realize that if, if the Spirit of God had not worked in you, you would be a vastly different person today without question. Most of us could probably acknowledge that if we looked honestly. The Spirit of God is what changes you, and that's what Paul's acknowledging, that the Spirit is at work. But notice there's, there's one more phrase that I want to point out, and it's, it's this at the end of that sentence in the middle of verse 5. End with full conviction. And then look at, look at the rest of verse 5. You yourselves know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I think what Paul is pointing here to is not he's pointing to the Word, he's pointing to the power of the Spirit, and he's pointing to his own integrity. As if to say this, we weren't trying to sell you something. We came to you and we actually lived among you long enough so that you could see that we were for real. That we're sinful, flawed human beings just like everyone else's, but that the message of God is powerful because the Spirit of God is powerful through His Word. What do we need to do with this, y'all? I think it's a few things. When it comes to telling people about Jesus, or even about you wrestling through your own times of doubt and make, trying to make sense of life, the call for us is to, to remember how we came to faith and how the gospel goes out, isn't it? What is the content of the gospel? What's the message concerning Jesus that I can share and that I need to remember? For some of, for some of us, it may be as simple as, as memorizing the, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. To remember, to be reminded that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. To, to know that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And the scriptures tell us that all who look to him and trust in him will be saved. To cling to the promises of God. To know that there is content. We also need to remember that belief happens when the spirit of God is at work. Con conversion, sharing the gospel, is not selling something. It's not trying to manipulate someone. It's not even about winning an argument. Evangelism begins by seeking the work of God through his spirit in the lives of those who don't believe. Evangelism, beloved, begins with prayer. By praying that the Spirit of God will work. Because if the Spirit doesn't work, our efforts are futile. And if the Spirit does work, there is nothing that will hinder him, nothing that will get in his way, nothing that will stop him. Let me lastly on this point say this. Some of you may feel like you've been manipulated or manhandled into belief. You may look back at your life and, and, and question, is it real? Because that person has gone off the rails since, since I was a part of his ministry or part of it, her church. Could, could it be real? 
And what I want to say to you is this. You're not here by accident this morning. And I'm not trying to oversimplify your hurt or your pain or the questions that you have. What I'll invite you to do, though, is to actually be willing to wrestle honestly with those questions because the Bible would, because the Bible would say that it's not about manipulation. And the call of Jesus is to actually wrestle with these truths and these realities. There's a great value, Paul is telling us, in remembering how the gospel comes to us. But notice where he takes us in verses 6 to 8. Not only does he, 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 because he does get to this point where he says, okay, now we've, re- we've reviewed how the gospel came to you. Now he calls the Thessalonians and us to, to think about this. What does the gospel do in your life? Look with me again at the text at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then jump down to verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What he's describing here is a gospel trans- that the gospel transformed their very lives. They became imitators. They changed their behavior. The implication is that their behavior became something that it was not. He says in verse 9 that they worshipped idols. Now they worship the living and true God. Their very behavior changed. Everything about life changed for these folks. So much so that other people are looking at them as examples. I hear many, I hear, I've heard it said many times, look, don't do what I do. You know, do what I say, don't do what I do. People are watching us. You may not feel like a mature Christian, but know that there's somebody watching you, not, not to catch you in a trap, but because they're trying to figure out life themselves. Don't be embarrassed by that. It's part of, it's part of the work of God, the gospel in us. Because by God's grace, we are not who we were five years ago, and by God's grace, we will not be the same people five years from now. God is at work changing us and shaping us. And there is this reality of imitating that's part of the deal. But notice what else happens in the second part of verse 6. He says this, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the gospel cost these people something, as we've already acknowledged. It cost them their safety. It cost them their reputations. And that is not lost on Paul. Remember that Jesus told his disciples that to follow him would mean rejection, suffering, and even death. And only the life, death, and only the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus can begin to make any sense of that. But sense of it, it can truly make. Because it's not, it's, it's not people looking at their circumstances and pretending that, that, that things don't hurt. That there is not loss, that there is not pain, that there is not suffering. That is not the call of the Bible. What we see, rather, is that it's the presence of the Spirit that gives them the ability to see what, what the, what's right in front of them may not help them see, and what may not help them understand. But by the Spirit, we see that working. And it does make sense that we would need to suffer as Jesus suffered, because something greater awaits us. But look with me also and notice what he adds to this in verse 8 as we continue to think about the transforming power of the gospel. He says, not only has the word sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Think about what he's saying there. There seems to be two kinds of things happening. One of the things that's happening in the life of this, through the life of this church is that the gospel message is being shared. It is being sounded forth. It is going forth. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is talked about, is proclaimed, and faith is invited of those who would hear. But there seems to be something else happening as well. That something is this, that their reputation as a people of faith is spreading far and wide, far beyond their region, the, the, what we now call the area of Greece, which is what, what the first part was about. But their reputation as a people of faith is spreading far and wide. What are we known for? 
What are we known for? I grew up in a town of about 25,000 people. Oh, thank you, give or take, in the, in the small town in Wisconsin. It's about three hours north of Chicago and about an hour southwest of Green Bay. My hometown is called Nina. And I tell you that because my little town, in kind of an obscure part of the country, is known for two things worldwide. The two things are this, manhole covers and paper products. It used to be the case that if you had a package of Kleenex tissue, facial tissue in your, in your pocket, you pulled it out. My hometown is listed on the back. I don't know that that's the case anymore. But I've been around the country, and wherever we go, I always check out the manhole covers. Those are the sewer lids that are in the streets around things. It's not the only place that makes them, but it's one of the, my hometown is one of the places where those are made, and you can go anywhere and see them. There's actually a Facebook group of people that have traveled around the world and taken pictures of manhole covers around the world and posted them on Facebook. It's what my town's known for. We, we see that with a great deal of pride. But I want to ask you this. What is our church known for? What's our reputation? And I want to take a risk here. Um, and I'm going to caveat this with several things because I don't want to get myself in trouble because that could happen easily. But I want to put all this together and ask some questions that I don't really know the answers to. And I'm not trying to pretend that I do. And hear me, none of what I'm about to ask is a criticism of our elders or anyone else in this church. So please, if you hear that, please know that that was not my intention. Please tell me and I'll ask for forgiveness, I promise. But think about this. We often celebrate our pastors. We often talk about the sermons, I'd like to think. We talk about programs of our church. We talk maybe about the property that our church owns. And that's common parlance in our world. Have you heard this guy preach? You've got to go, you've got to go check him out. You've got to listen to this podcast. It, it's amazing. He's, he handles the word so carefully and so clearly. Man, my church has all kinds of programs for people of all ages. It's so wonderful. Oh, the church's building that we worship in, it's just astounding. It, it lifts me up every time I go in. Those things are not bad, and I'm not trying to say that they are. But what would it look like if we were known for our faith? Isn't it interesting that, that Paul doesn't mention the pastor or the elders of this church in Thessalonica, but he says to these people, your faith is known far and wide. What would it look like for us if, if, there, if word got back to Kansas City or even St. Louis or Chicago of the, that something is happening in this church and, and that our very lives are being changed and that our faith, hope, and love are becoming more and more realities for us. And word would be getting out about that. What would that look like for us? Can you imagine, can you dream about what that would, what that would look like and how we might get there and what that would be? It's an interesting thought experiment to me because so often I find myself, oh, this, this preacher, he's my favorite preacher ever. I say that about two or three guys for sure, at least. But what if, what if we turned our, our attention to the impact of, of the ministry of the Word of God on our lives, to regularly being in community with one another? What if, what if life looked like, even what we heard from Nathan, thanks for teaching me how to talk to different people. Thanks for teaching me how to have people in my home. I don't like people very much, but you taught me how to be warm and welcoming. What, what, if, what if the testimony of the reputation of this church was one in which people would, would freely say, they walked with me through some dark sin in my life that made me ashamed but I found life there, and I found hope in ways that I never found before. What if that would be the work of God transform, transforming any, all of us? One more thing I want you to see, and that's where he goes in verses 9 and 10. In these last two verses of this opening section of this letter, what Paul does is he, he takes us to the gospel itself. 
and he, and he, and he, he challenges us to see what the gospel is that we might have hope. And I, I, want you to, I just want to point out three things. First of all, look at 9b, the second part of verse 9. He says this, how you turn, from God, from, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. He's describing the impact of the gospel as turning from and turning to. The gospel is about you wor- what you worship and who you serve. It's not just about what you don't do or what you do wrong. The gospel is about turning from your sin, your worship of anything and everything except God, to worshiping the God of the universe. The second thing, notice the direction of the gospel in the first part of verse 10. He says this, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the, from the wrath to come. The, the part of the direction of the gospel is that we, we would look now and wait for one day his return. That the one who is raised from the dead will indeed return one day and make all things new. That we could look through, we could look from where we sit here and now and look to the future and know that he's coming back. And then the second part of verse 10, I just want to highlight this. The one um, where, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That where we, where, from where we sit, we, we can look back in the past and know that Jesus lived, died, and he rose again. And the gospel message is that here and now, he delivers us, he rescues us from the wrath to come. What Paul is doing is he's pointing out to us, he's pointing us to Jesus himself as the very center and the heart of, of what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus, and he's calling us to live life in his kingdom. One, one pastor said it this way, the truth that is, Jesus, is that Jesus himself is the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom is not a new political regime, it's not a new program, it is not a new ideology, it is not a new philosophy, it is the person of Jesus. And to know what God's kingly rule is, one must believe in Jesus and come to him. The call is this, it's not to change, simply change the facts that you know, or change your ideology, it's to know Jesus. I wonder how quick we are to only see part of the gospel and to miss the fullness of Jesus as he's offered to us. I wonder if we live our lives wanting to be rescued from sin, but we miss the fact that he calls us to a new way of living altogether, a new way of learning to love one another selflessly and sacrificially. We feel the impatience of waiting but miss the promised future that lies ahead for us, to know that indeed Jesus has promised that one day he will return and he will make all things new. We can look at the past work of Jesus but miss it in our lives now. We can acknowledge that he, he'd lived in, in, at a point in time, he died and he rose again, and yet we don't consider the, the, the impact of that on, here, on us here and now. Paul wants us to find encouragement in the gospel, beloved. He wants us to know the hope and the life and the faith and the love that is there. And so that's where he draws our attention. He draws us to take a look and see how the gospel comes to us, how it indeed goes about changing lives, to realize that it's something that's outside of us and yet becomes a part of us, to remember what the gospel has done, what God has done in our lives and is doing in us now, to remember the beauty and the promise of the gospel itself. This is where he points us. This is what he wants us to see. I don't know if many of you get Dennis McAllister's baseball columns that he sends out every week. Um, and I'm not a fan of baseball, I'll tell you that up front, but I love reading his articles. And one, one, a while back he told the story of Billy Williams, who's an African-American man, who in the late 50s and early 60s, or 1959, 12 years after Jackie Robinson had broken the colored barrier in the major leagues, Billy Williams was playing in the Cubs AA minor league system. And at this point in our country, it was still hard to be an, it was, of course, it was still hard to be an African-American man in many parts of this country. He came face to face with a kind of racism that made black players stay in separate hotels and eat at separate restaurants and diners, different from their white teammates. 
This caused Billy Williams to say, I'm done. I'm not putting up with this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. And so he went back home to Whistler, Alabama. And the Cubs front office knew the prospect they had in this man, the great player that he was, the consistent player that he was. And they knew that he was one of the best minor league prospects that they had. So they spent, sent Buck O'Neill um, to Whistler in hopes that he would come to convince Billy to rejoin the, the, the team there. O'Neill himself, a former player manager with the, with the legendary Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro League, was no stranger to the Jim Crow realities in this country. When O'Neill got to Whistler to find Billy, he didn't choose, however, to talk some sense in him like Billy's parents told him to do. Instead, old wise Buck took Billy to a nearby park in town where children were playing baseball. The welcome the children gave to their hometown hero convinced Billy he needed to go back and pursue his dream to become a Major League Baseball player. You see what O'Neill did? He could have yelled at him, he could have threatened him, he could have promised him more money, but this is what he did. He took him to the heart of the matter and he said, it's about baseball and it's about the next generation seeing you play. And that did it and that's all it took and that's what it took. He needed to get to the heart of what it was about and that changed him. Beloved, that's where Paul takes us. He doesn't threaten you. He doesn't shame you. He doesn't say you got to perform or you're not, you're not good enough. What he says is he says Jesus is enough and to remember the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious, merciful, holy God, we are quick to forget. We need your grace to remember the truth of the gospel and the hope that is ours. Continue to shape us by this, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.